welcome tonight, everyone that's on the phone, friends and comrades. The People's School tonight is doing a study on the Mongolian People's Republic, when it started, how it gave birth to socialism, the different path that Mongolia took than others taken, and Lenin's contribution to the path that Mongolia took. So we have Comrade Sersha is going to be discussing it. So we're going to get started. Go ahead, Sersha. Okay, thank you, Comrade. I'm going to be reading from Soviet Russia and the Mongolian Revolution of 1921, along with some stuff I prepared myself. The author is Fujiko Isono. This was published in May of 1979. It was a relatively short article that goes into the revolution in Mongolia and talks about how it was formed from two separate groups coming together and the conditions that helped the revolution happen in the first place. On the 27th of June, 1921, the Soviet army crossed the border into Outer Mongolia, bringing the Mongolian revolution to rapid victory. This has led to the widely accepted theory that Soviet intervention was a straightforward invasion of Outer Mongolia in the course of Soviet expansionism. According to this view, the request of the Mongolian People's Party for Soviet support was made at Russian instigation and the capture of Erga, now Ulaanbaatar, by Ergen Sternberg is interpreted as a mere pretext for the Russian invasion, as Ergen posed no real or substantial threat to the Soviet regime. As George Murphy has written, the Soviet authorities, quote, were at the end of a victorious struggle and both their morale and their confidence were high. And the goal of Erga and of acquisition of influence over the vast region of Outer Mongolia seems to have been irresistible to the Soviet government. There is no doubt that the propaganda of revolutionary ideals was a fundamental objective of the Bolsheviks. But when we look more carefully at both the internal and international situation of Soviet Russia in 1921, such a motive, even when linked to the supposed desires of Russia to secure and exploit the abundant natural resources of her neighbor does not appear sufficient to account for an invasion of Outer Mongolia at this particular point in time. In other words, it, it wasn't an invasion. Mongolia actually did ask for help. In this paper, discussion will be focused on the reasons for the Soviet intervention of 1921. Notice that she says intervention now and not invasion. Leaving the various ideological and political aspects of Soviet influence to be treated elsewhere. And then it goes into the historical background of the Mongolian Revolution. In December 1911, with the, quote, eighth reincarnation of the Urga living Buddha as Bogdan, sacred emperor of Mongolia, the territory of Outer Mongolia declared its independence from China. The Mongols reasoned that, as they had at the end of the 17th century originally submitted to the Qing emperor 
recognizing him as their Khan. Their allegiance to China naturally terminated with the fall of the imperial dynasty and the creation of a republic. A Mongol secessionist movement was, in fact, already in being in response to the new policy of Qing China to bring outer Mongolia under its direct control, depriving the Mongol princes of their rights to rule within their own respective territories. A delegation of Mongol princes and high lamas had accordingly been sent to St. Petersburg in summer of 1911 to seek Russian support for an independent Mongolia. In addition to the nationalist initiative, there were the manifest grievances of the lower classes who were either personally subject to the princes or the monasteries or obliged to perform corvies for the Qing dynasty, being required to pay dues to their lords and the cost of administration, as well as their own personal expenses. They were deeply in debt to the Chinese merchant users. Clearly, they too had ample reason to want to be free of Manchu Chinese exploitation. So the Mongols thus aimed at establishing an independent Mongol state, uniting both inner and outer Mongolia, no other country recognized their independence. Even Russia limited its support to outer Mongolian autonomy, wishing neither to create international complication nor take upon itself the difficult task of organizing the still underdeveloped Mongols into a state, which as Foreign Minister Sazanov declared to the Duma, would involve great financial expense and enormous labor. The Peking government was finally forced to compromise after the Russo-Chinese Joint Declaration of 1913, which recognized Chinese suzerainty over an autonomous Outer Mongolia. The status of Outer Mongolia was formalized by the Triparty Agreement of 1915 between Russia, China, and Mongolia, which effectively put an end to Mongol hopes for uniting a Mongol state. Nevertheless, because of internal disorder in China, Outer Mongolia did enjoy de facto independence until the end of 1919, long enough for some Mongols to realize that Manchu exploitation had simply been replaced by increased exactions by their own ruling class. In this period, the beginnings of modern education in Mongolia and the publications of newspapers in the Mongol language created a new type of secular intellectual. After the Russian Revolution of 1917, many Mongols, even in the countryside, heard that the Tsar had been overthrown and that the Russian people had become equal. And in Urga itself, progressive Russians explained the new idea to their Mongol friends. I'll stop there for questions. My question regarding Mongolia, at least so far with the reading, is that so do we have any information about uh, the development of the Mongolian Communist Party? Was it, was, it seems like it was already in existence, but was it pretty widespread? How close was it with the Bolsheviks? It wasn't in existence yet, actually. The party itself, which I'll explain in the reading later on, the party itself didn't fully become a communist party until after the start of the revolution. Thank you.
First of all, I have a little question about the geography. What's the difference between Mongolia and Outer Mongolia? And second of all, I would like to justify Soviet intervention. It was not intervention. If there is a progressive movement outside of the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union was justified to help them, even physically, by intervening in their internal matters in the context of proletarian internationalism. The bourgeoisie is helping the world bourgeoisie. So why can't the Soviet Union support a progressive movement, even if it's not Marxist-Leninist in Mongolia? I'll answer both of those. Inner Mongolia and outer Mongolia. So Mongolia used to be huge. It used to be most of the world, basically. It used to be like almost all of Asia. And then during the Qing dynasty, Mongolia was united, and Mongolia got split into inner and outer Mongolia in 1911 with China holding on to Inner Mongolia, which they do to this day. Inner Mongolia chose to remain as part of China even after World War II. And as for the intervention thing, intervention was meant in a positive way. Intervention was used instead of invasion to be a more positive way of putting it. So that's what the author meant by intervention was something positive, not something negative. The Mongolia that we know on the map today, would that be inner or outer? I'm not, I'm not sure about that. And do you happen to have numbers on how what percentage of the Mongolian population supported Soviet intervention? What's on the map today is what's considered outer Mongolia. And no, I, I don't have any statistics for that. They didn't really have statistics like that in Mongolia back then. The name of the article that I'm reading is Soviet Russia and the Mongolian Revolution of 1921, and you can find this on archive.org. It's by Fujiko Isono. F-U-J-I-K-O-I-S-O-N-O. So it was Inner Mongolia that sent their representatives first in 1911 to Moscow, right? And then Outer Mongolia is now getting a taste that, hey, maybe we don't like our independence as much as we thought? No, no. It was Mongolia as a whole that had done it, and Inner Mongolia and Outer Mongolia got split in kind of this arbitrary way. Oh, I see. Yeah. Thank you. The next part of the class is going to be... I was going to go into the actual formation of the party. The chapter is called the formation of the Mongolian People's Party. All right, go ahead. It was in such circumstances that towards the end of 1918, two separate groups of Mongol progressive nationalists were formed in Urga. The primary concern of both was to prevent the loss of Mongolia's autonomy. One of the groups consisted mainly of petty officials, but included Sukhbatar, now called the father of the revolution. Choibalsan, who was to occupy the post of prime minister from 1939 to 1952, belonged to the second group, which was led by Badu, a learned lama who had visited both Russia and China. Choibalsan, with two co-authors, Lasol and Demden, had left us his reminiscence of the Mongolian Revolution in a remarkable work entitled a Concise History of the Origins and Organization of the Mongolian People's Revolution. 
It is an extraordinarily frank record of the author's experience, many of which are not to be found in subsequent official histories. The following account is principally based on this document, which is little known outside the Mongolian People's Republic. I'd also like to say that I scoured the internet high and low to try and find this in English and sadly could not find it, except for here. As Badu was teaching the Mongol language at the Russian consulate in Urga and Troibosan had studied at Urkos until the outbreak of the Russian Revolution, it was the group to which they belonged that first established useful contact with the Russians. Two men who soon revealed that they belonged to the clandestine revolutionary committee of Russian residents in Urga. Tupatar's group, on the other hand, tried at first to influence the Bog and also approached Erlov, the former Tsarist consulate general in Urga, who now represented Kolchak. Though perhaps demonstrating their inexperience, this does not signify that the members of this group were merely nationalists. For in February 1920, apparently before they came to work with the other groups, Suk Batar and Danzan, customs officials, tried to cross the frontier into Russia to observe developments there firsthand and to find ways and means of securing Soviet assistance. Danzan had already heard something of the new ideas in Russia from a very odd teacher. I'm not going to try his name. And Sukhbatar had been a non-commissioned officer in the army of the autonomous government. Where some of the Russian instructors had also been influenced by progressive ideas. In the small circle of intellectuals in Urga, members of one group had acquaintances in the other. But in the first contacts between the two groups were cautious with friends merely sounding out each other's opinions in the course of ordinary conversations. At the end of 1919, General Su Shang arrived from Peking and brushing aside the more conciliatory negotiations of Chen Yi, forced the Bog's government to petition for the abrogation of Outer Mongolian autonomy. This development persuaded the two groups to embark on a program of joint action. They put up propaganda posters proposing in one of them to replace the hereditary princes with elected leaders, and an unsuccessful attempt was made to assassinate Su. As an inevitable consequence of this cooperation, Sukhvatar's group also established contact with the two Russian revolutionaries in Urga. One day in the spring of 1920, Badu and Choi asked the advice of their Russian contacts on how best to promote their cause in the prevailing circumstances of a ruthless Chinese occupation. One of the Russians suggested that they should meet Surakovikov, who was on the point of leaving for Irkutsk to report on the situation in Urga. He added that Soviet Russia was ready to assist weak and small nations under oppression. Sometime in April, five representatives of the two groups met Sorokovikov, who asked detailed questions regarding the aim and organization of their group. Eager to impress Sorokovikov with their importance, 
They put the total number of the representatives as several thousand, though the figures were clearly an exaggeration. It was not simply an idle boast on the part of the Mongols. At that time, they had as yet no clearly defined idea of the meaning of the word party in its political sense. The Mongol word nam means a group, a section of the population like a class. They were, in fact, attempting to give their estimate of the number of people who they thought would be sympathetic to their cause, which somewhat answers the question of the comrade from before. So although they didn't have statistics, they had a rough estimate of the people who they thought might be supportive of them. After his return from Irkutsk as the Comintern representative, Sokorikov met the various members of the two groups on June 20th, 1920, and advised them to send a delegation to the Comintern's Far Eastern Secretariat. On June 25th, following another of his suggestions, the two groups merged to form the Mongolian People's Party and adopted a party platform. The members of the party at that time seems only to have been around 20, and the smallness of this number is often cited as evidence against any significant Mongol initiative in the revolution. But given that these were the original members of a clandestine revolutionary organization, that the total Mongol population of Outer Mongolia at the time can be estimated at barely 550,000, the number is not, in fact, significantly small, especially when we remember that all of the members lived in or near Urga, the Mongol population of which was only about 30,000. It is perhaps useful in this context to cite the parallel case of contemporary China with a population well over a thousand times greater than that of Outer Mongolia, but where at the first Congress of the Chinese Communist Party in July 1921, there was a membership attendance of only 13. The membership figure for the entire country at the time was a mere 57. At their meeting of June 25th, the newly formed party decided to appoint the delegates to go to Soviet Russia, but the mission was clearly a perilous one, and many dangers were to be expected on the way. No one volunteered, and no one dared say to another, you should go. They therefore drew lots to decide, and the choice fell upon Danzan and Choibosan. The other members assisted with the preparations, supplying provisions, and other necessities for the journey. And at the beginning of July, the two rode secretly out of Urga and headed for the Russian border. And with that, I'll stop for questions. I'm noticing that the revolutionary movements start very small at first. I think that's interesting. We tend to think in this country many times, especially the old party, the old CP always told me that we have to have masses, but they never did explain to me that we have to start small and that we grow. And we have the right ideology. That's more important than the size. Size is important, but tactics, strategy, and ideology are more important than the size of a revolutionary movement. The other thing I wanted to mention is that, like Afghanistan, we have to know what happened in Afghanistan in the mid-70s 
to become a revolutionary movement and the Soviet involvement and assistance in Afghanistan. But the reason why I mention it is because Afghanistan, the same thing happened. Two sections came together. Pachim was one of the sections. They came together and they formed a revolutionary party. It was called the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan. And so when <laughs> Kamrit was talking, I saw this similarity in another Muslim country. What's a Bog? The Bog Khan is like the Dalai Lama of Mongolia. Okay, thanks. I'm aware of the Gobi Desert, but why was the journey so dangerous to get to the Russian border and reach the Bolsheviks? Because of groups like there was a Czech volunteer force and a bunch of other white supporters in the Far East at the time who they would have to try and avoid to get to the Soviets, along with other groups such as the anarchists and such that they were trying to fight off throughout Russia and the left SRs and such that they were trying to fight off throughout Russia. So they had to avoid them. It was a perilous journey because it was also the middle of winter. I would like to add to that. I urge people to see the movie Red, R-E-D-S, made in 1980-81, directed by Warren Beatty. That movie shows very clearly the dangers for pro-Bolshevik forces to reach each other in different parts of the country at the time, because counter, as Comrade said, counter-revolutionary forces were all over the place. These were supporters of the Tsar, and they were all over. He mentioned the Cheka, the group called the Cheka, I think it was called, and the White Forces was mentioned by Seosha. So if you get the movie read and look at it, if you've seen it already, see it again. Thank you. So the merging of the two parties, does that have any similarity to what happened in the GDR and the German Democratic Republic? I know they had a couple parties that had to merge. Is there any resemblance to what happened here? I would say that it's similar to something like a united front, but because it was two groups that were fighting for something similar, I'd say it's more like similar to what happened in Hungary, where you had the small holders party, which was a, an agrarian socialist party with Marxist leanings, and you had the communist party coming together, because these were both left-wing parties coming together. In East Germany, you had the Christian Democrats, you had a bunch of different parties coming together in a united front, and not all of them were necessarily left-wing, but yes, it's similar to what happened, but not the same thing. It's more similar to what the Soviet Union tried to do when they first formed, but it was actually successful, as opposed to having everybody stab the Bolsheviks in the back. I'd like to add to that. It is similar. It seems like uh, Comrade has hit on something, in my opinion. In the United States, we had two communist parties. They went to the common turn in 1918, 1919, 1920. And when they went there, they were told by the common turn, again, the movie Reds shows all this to verify this history. They were forced to become one party by the common turn. And it seems very similar from the description given tonight, that the Soviet influence and having people form one party, which is really important. So there is a similarity, in my opinion. Thank you. There was a quote by Comrade Lenin that I wanted to read to everybody before I went on. 
I'll talk about it a little bit. Trotsky wanted to turn Mongolia during the Russian Civil War into a buffer state, and Lenin was absolutely against this idea. He thought that this was a really stupid idea on his part, in fact. He didn't understand why he was saying that. I have it right here. We must vehemently denounce the opponents of a buffer state and demand that everyone in Siberia carry out the slogan, not a step farther east, all out efforts to hasten the movement of troops and locomotives to the west, to Russia. We would be idiots to allow ourselves to be drawn into a stupid movement into the heart of Siberia, permitting Denkin, meanwhile, to revive and the Poles to strike. It would be a crime. This was talking about one of his main concerns was the Japanese. One of the things he was talking about was the Far East Republic, but he didn't want to use Mongolia as a buffer state. And it's not mentioned in this book, I don't believe. I'm going to be wrapping things up talking about modern Mongolia for the next little bit here. But Lenin was one-fourth Kalmyk, and in a conversation with Comrade Sukhbatar, who was the leader of the party in Mongolia, he spoke about his Mongolian heritage and how he had a special brotherly connection, special fraternal connection to the Mongolian people because of that, and that that was one of the things that drew him to helping the Mongolian people and was one of the things that really helped the Mongolian revolution be so successful was the personal stake that Lenin felt in this. And so after Troibosan and the other comrade went to Russia, they got to meet with Lenin, they got to meet with a bunch of other comrades, and the Red Army sent a bunch of help to Mongolia. The revolution was largely successful because of the Soviet intervention and because there was such strong support in Mongolia. Although Mongolia didn't have almost anything in terms of an actual army or anything, they didn't have anything in terms of really developed class. What they had is they had that home front advantage. They had people who had something that they really believed in, and that was something that helped them win. And so after this, they established a socialist state. And... What they immediately did is they started trying to collectivize the people in the outer regions, the nomadic herders and such. And this wasn't immediately successful because Mongolia at the time, culturally, you could say that Russia was still in the 19th century in 1924 you could say that Mongolia was still in the 18th century or the 17th century even. They hadn't really developed class lines yet. They didn't really have a class. They hadn't even developed a peasantry yet. So Mongolia actually, over time, decided to let some of these classes develop. And they did this under the guidance of a socialist state. They tried to let a socialist economy develop under this. And it wasn't entirely successful at first. They had some hiccups along the way, just as the Soviet Union did, as any country does. Because 
the Soviet Union didn't have much of a blueprint. They didn't have much of a blueprint. They were the second socialist state. They formed during the Russian Civil War. So when the Russian Civil War ended, they were forming along with the Soviet Union. So they got the opportunity to build socialism at the exact same time as the Soviet Union. So they got to do the exact same, you could call them experiments, as the Soviet Union did. They did their whole NEP thing and everything. It was a little different for them because they had to go through development in a different way. They had to develop productive forces in a different way. They allowed kulaks to exist for a little longer than the Soviet Union did because they had to let kulaks even come into existence first. And they dealt with them differently as well. By the time this sort of thing where they actually had permanent farming settlements even coming into existence, World War II had basically started. And they were focusing on having the Japanese at their doorstep, having little border skirmishes with them. And they were lucky to be able to sign a treaty along with the Soviets of non-intervention with the Japanese for the majority of World War II. And during this time, along with the Soviet Union, they built up their army and such. And they had a large army. They had probably the largest cavalry army in all of World War II. They had a huge cavalry-based army, which was surprisingly very useful for them against the Japanese during World War II. They were very beneficial to the Soviet Union when they were fighting the Japanese at the end of World War II. And during this time, they were getting a lot of Soviet aid because they didn't really have infrastructure. So Soviet aid was helping them out a lot. And so you'll see people like Enver Hoxha would say, well, this is social imperialism. Or you'll see later on in China, this is the kind of thing that would have been called social imperialism from the Soviet Union, which obviously isn't true. This is what's known as proletarian internationalism. This is when a socialist country helps another socialist country that's in need. If it wasn't for Soviet aid, Mongolia likely would not have been able to develop as rapidly as they did. They didn't get to skip the capitalist phase of development. It took them much longer than it did the Soviet Union, in fact. But they did get to go from being a theocratic feudal society to being a socialist state much quicker than even the Soviet Union did, which is something quite impressive. It's one of the things that's made me as interested in Mongolia as I am. I think I'll stop one more time for questions right now before I get into World War II and then I go right into modern Mongolia. So my question is actually on modern Mongolia. As Western sources say, it was Mongolia treated as a border zone during the Sino-Soviet split? Yeah, kind of. Mongolia was hostile to China, too. I mean, Mongolia sided 100% with the Soviet Union in the Sino-Soviet split. So yes and no. But during the Brezhnev area, just as Brezhnev tried to repair relations with China and Deng Xiaoping tried to repair relations with the Soviet Union a little bit towards the end there, Mongolia tried to repair relations with China as well. And 
there was actually a period of time when you had a bunch of people from Inner Mongolia fleeing to the Mongolian People's Republic, and then during the Perestroika area, you had a bunch of people from Mongolia fleeing to China as well. So it was kind of a mess, actually. Thank you. I just wanted to provide a statistic for what Comrade was speaking about. She had mentioned that the Soviet Union played a role in the development of Mongolia, and the book that I have states that in the mid-1920s to the mid-1930s, in a 10-year period, the Soviet Union had established on its own over 200 industries in Mongolia, and what they done was they came to Mongolia, established these industries, and they stayed there for no longer than what they were needed. So they stayed there. They taught the peasants how to be workers. They gave them all the formal training that they needed. And as soon as the state thought that the workers could handle it on their own, they sent the Soviets back to the Soviet Union. So I just wanted to provide that statistic that within a 10-year period, the Soviet Union developed over 200 industries in Mongolia. So thank you. That's correct. And Mongolia also... There was a period of time when Mongolia was called the breadbasket of the Soviet Union for a time, which I believe was also something that Ukraine was called, if I'm remembering correct. correctly. That's correct. Ukraine yeah. was called that, yes. They called Mongolia that sometimes because they provided a bunch of wheat. They also sent a lot of mutton and lamb over to them as well. They provided an awful lot of the meat to the Soviet Union. It was a very beneficial thing. They gave the Soviet Union meat and wool and such and wheat, and the Soviet Union gave them tractors and fuel and economic assistance. It was beneficial, mutually beneficial for both sides. Thank you. So you said that Trotsky wanted to use Mongolia as a buffer state? Yeah. If I'm remembering correctly, I could be wrong. Trotsky wanted to use Mongolia as a buffer state against Japanese invasion. Thank you. Okay, I just want to make a statement. What is Mongolia's significance to the occurring question, which we raise now and many times in our party and others? How to build socialism, this is the question, without first going through capitalism? That seems to be an occurring question, started by Bukharin in the 20s with the NEP, continuing through Dao Xiaoping, continuing to Vietnam, I think they call it the NOI, the reforms, going to what happened in Cuba last year by letting off 500,000 workers from the state. They set them adrift, and they had to be entrepreneurs and start their own businesses. And the idea is going through capitalism first in order to get to socialism. I think Mongolia answered that question with Lenin. I can actually get into that. So... The idea that Mongolia didn't develop capitalism at all is something of a half-truth. They, they did. They, they developed capitalism. They allowed private farms to exist. And the, they had a system known as the Negdel system as well. Negdel means union. The unions, the Negdels, were the Mongolian version of the Kolkos from the Soviet Union. And what they did is people were allowed to join the Negdels, they could go in, they made their own schedules for the year, they had to work 175 days, they had to work eight hours, and as long as they worked 175 days, eight hours for that period of time, that was all they had to do. And most of the poor peasants joined them right away, and that's how they collectivized the poor peasants. 
It worked right away, real quick. They started that in the early 50s. And they had this in a smaller scale from the 30s on. And then they had these larger farmers, large for Mongolia, I should say. And these are basically kulaks. Instead of going and just forcibly collectivizing them, they taxed them to death. They taxed them to the point where it was no longer profitable for them to have these private farms. And they would join the Nagdel system, and the private farms just withered away. They had socialism. They had the socialist system. They developed the socialist system right away. And they still had the existence of capitalism to deal with, because capitalism didn't just go away overnight, just like it didn't in the Soviet Union. And so they did have to develop capitalism a little bit, but not to the degree that other countries have had to, because they had so much Soviet assistance. So I guess what you could say is that what Mongolia had is Mongolia had so much Soviet assistance. The position that Mongolia had is that the Soviet Union only had to worry about, at the time, Mongolia and Tuva. The Soviet Union didn't have to worry about Hungary, Bulgaria, Czechoslovakia, Laos, Vietnam, the DPRK, Cuba, Angola, Mozambique, the Democratic People's Republic of the Congo, Nicaragua, etc. There was only three states. There was themselves, Mongolia, and Tuva. They didn't have to worry about everybody else back then. There was only three states they had to worry about. So it was less they had to worry about at the time. There was less industry to worry about back then. So it was a little simpler. But still, Mongolia did have to develop capitalism to some degree to be able to do what they did. And they had to rely on the Soviet Union having to rely on the NEP a little bit to be able to send them the funds that they did. So I wouldn't say that Mongolia was actually able to skip the capitalist phase. I'd say that that's a half-truth really at best. Okay, now we're going to open up for round robin. I'm seeing this as a pattern, which is really interesting to me, to see an historical example of a large socialist country helping out another one because they requested it. It'll give me a better lens to look through when I look at that China and how it may influence may be expanding. I, yeah, this is a good reference for me because I'm sure China's done at least something similar on some occasions. Thank you, Gumray. I was really looking forward to this class and especially getting more into Mongolia's relationship with the capitalist stage and delivered this presentation with flying colors. So thank you for putting this on. Thank you, Gumray. Good examples of internationalism, which is part of our eight points of unity. So take a look at that if you haven't. Thank you, Comrade. And thanks for bringing up the eight points of unity in there. I actually didn't even consider that myself. Thank you, Comrade. It's good to hear about the history of, again, just like Laos, small countries that we don't get to hear about often. And we get to hear those nice stories and see where they went. So thank you. Thank you. I don't know too much about Mongolia to begin with. Do we know what the state of socialism in Mongolia is today? Yeah, it's the same in Mongolia as it in every former socialist country. Capitalism is in the seat. It's running things. That should be enough. It's unfortunate. That's the situation now. I don't even know if the Communist Party is outlawed as it is in Poland and the Ukraine. And in Hungary, mm. basically, it's outlawed too, by the way. So the party, like in a couple other countries, was rebranded into a social democratic party. And there's actually been a disturbing rise in Nazism in Mongolia that makes absolutely no sense, like mm -hmm. the rise in Nazism in Slavic countries. 
Yeah, can okay. I speak on that briefly too? Because uh, I've traveled internationally representing the party. And it's funny you mentioned this. I've met one of the leaders of, it's funny you talk about how the parties have changed their names and such. And this is from Kazakhstan. And this is incredible, but I think the name Communist Party is actually banned in Kazakhstan. If you could believe that, it's like banned. And so it's called Socialist Movement of Kazakhstan. And I've met one of the people in it. And we'll have to do more with them in the future. It's very interesting, all the stuff going on over there. Interesting people should know from our country, we have the Army School of the Americas, which trained all the, basically every single dictator ever around the world, mainly in Latin America. But it got renamed because of all the controversy, obviously. So it's no longer called Army School of Americas. Now it's called WINSEC, W-H-I-N, and something. It's Western Hemisphere Institute for Security and Economic Cooperation or something. But basically, all the Central Asian countries, not all of them, actually, but a few of them have been training their police and their military in the U.S. And I think it's tragic. Who knows what's going to happen in that area of the world, but it's just a tragedy. Our country, our foothold there is getting stronger, and the people there are just going to get butchered like they were in South America. I was just wondering if you guys have any, like, figures in terms of, like, literacy rates or life expectancy that were raised during the Socialist Mongolia's existence? Yeah, life expectancy went from, I believe, about 40-something years to 64 years by 1950, and the literacy rate was up to 89% by World War II. What was it before that? It was about 8% at that point in time. It was really, really low. Neglected to ask about the religion. I, I didn't realize this place was a Muslim country, but just, I guess, Afghanistan and Palestine, all those places are Muslim. So I bet there's a split, and there must be some Muslim. There were Muslims that were for the revolution. That's all I got to say. They were Buddhists, mostly, actually. But there were a small pocket of... Muslims who were Mongolian, but the majority of Muslims in Mongolia were Kazakhs, comrade. Thank you, comrade, for that. First of all, when was the Mongolian Revolution successful? That I didn't catch that if that was said. It was 1921. It started in 1921 and ended in 1921. It only lasted a few months. And so thank you, everyone, for coming to the class tonight. Good night.